So Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22. Hear the word of God. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold round it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is the word of God. You may have a seat. You, you who have been made in the image of God, you who have been created by divine prerogative, you who have value and dignity and worth, you, you, you who have significance and meaning and purpose, you who are the apex of God's creation, you are not the center of the universe. Because you are not God. Life, this world, and everything that exists is not about us, but about Him. So yeah, but don't I have great value and significance and meaning and purpose? Yes, all those things. But they are all derived from, dependent upon, and listen, for the one who made you. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, that, that there is one God and Father from whom everything exists and for whom we exist. We exist from Him and for Him. Life is not about us. But we assume the contrary. Or at least we pretend that life is about us or should be about us. And we show this every time things don't go our way in how we respond. 
just a few weeks ago, we were supposed to go someplace as a family, and it was something we were supposed to go to that I wasn't really keen on going. It's not, not my type of thing. Uh, my wife is better in those situations, and she couldn't make it. And she said, but I think you should go anyway. I knew she was right, but it didn't stop me from complaining. Uh, I was whining like a fussy toddler, and um, I was being rude about it, but my wife's patience and grace God used to melt my heart, and I had to confess that I was living as if everything in this world should be about me and what I wanted. And isn't this really often our problems in our relationships? Parents, think about it for a moment. You need to discipline your kids. You need to give them rules and you need to correct them. And yet, there are times when you are sinfully angry with them, aren't you? Why is that? It's not primarily, if we're honest, because they have dishonored God or even because they are doing what is bad for themselves. It's mostly because they've inconvenienced us. You see, we know that we're not at the center of the universe, but we think that it should be that way. How many times do I have to tell you? I don't want to keep doing this. I don't want to have to tell you this again and go over this again and, and discipline you for this again and again and again. It's about what I want. What makes me happy. Or in a marriage with marital conflict or really just any relational conflict, isn't it that often you say, well, I'm the one who's serving the other person and then they're just not being grateful and they're not returning it. Like after all, I've been pretending like the world's all about them when it's really all about me. So they should be really grateful that I, the supreme one, am being so kind to them. We don't reason that out though, do we? That's often what's going on in our hearts. Or just think of our cultural chaos at the moment. Isn't much of it have to do with the fact that there are millions, maybe billions of people who are all saying, everyone should bow down to me. When everyone lives that way and we're trying to make that happen, it's chaos. It's chaos. Say, so this is true and sad, but what does it have to do with Exodus 25 in the Ark of God in the tabernacle. I think much in almost every way. Because the Ark of God was a symbol of the supreme importance of God. It wasn't the supreme importance of Israel or of Moses. It was a symbol of the supreme importance of God. When I say supreme importance, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that, well, everything has importance. Everything in your life has some importance to a greater or lesser degree. And everybody has importance. And there's a ranking and just God is just at the top. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God has such supreme importance that he has really all importance. That everything is not just subordinate to him in value and worth, but they should be subservient to him, supporting and showcasing that he is of all importance. Everything exists, you see, not just because of him and under him, but for him. For him. I believe that the ark of God was a symbol of the supreme importance of God, and I think we see this in three main ways. We see it first in the prescription of the ark. I don't say description because he's not really describing what is. He's prescribing what ought to be. Exodus 25, verse 9, God tells Moses, Exactly as I show you, so you shall make it. Verse 10, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. 
Verse 12, you shall cast four rings for it. 13, you shall make poles for it. This is what you ought to do. He's prescribing for them what the ark is to be. And he tells them there's two main categories. The ark is to be, first of all, costly, and second of all, consecrated. It is to be costly because it's, it's to show value. It's to show its importance, its preeminence. So we see it first in the priority. Right after uh, verses 1 through 9 where he's giving the uh, instructions for the contributions that they could build the tabernacle and everything in it, he starts off with what? Telling them how they can make the ark. What's interesting about this is the ark was not the first thing that they made. They made the tabernacle first, but he doesn't give instructions about the tabernacle first. He gives instructions about the ark first. Why? Well, maybe practically because the tabernacle was the housing of the ark But even more to the point was that the very centerpiece, the most important part of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And so there's a priority that he gives to it. And this is to say it's a symbol of the priority of God. You see it also in the details. You see the costliness and the value in the details. Verse 10, they shall make an Ark of acacia wood, not just any wood, but of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and and a cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. This is actually really precise measurements. It's a little over three and a half feet long and almost two and a half feet tall and two and a half feet wide. Not very big, but very precise measurements and very detailed in its ornateness. He goes on to say that it is to have molding all around it. You're to make it beautiful. And you're to put uh, 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 gold, not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. This is the costliness, the value of it is to be gold. Even the parts you cannot see Inside, it is to be layered with gold, pure gold. This is speaking of the, the, the costliness and the value, the importance of the ark, because it represents and is a symbol of the supreme importance of God himself. You see it not only in the costliness, but in the consecration, or that it is a consecrated piece, that it is holy, not just valuable, but sacred. See this first in verse 13 with the poles. He says, You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Why does he say it this way? Verse 15. They're to remain and not be taken out. It's like it's overkill, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem that way? But it's not. His point is that this is how you're to carry the ark because you shall not touch it. It's too holy for that. And you are too sinful. Do not even touch the ark You're to carry it on its poles. And the poles are to be acacia wood overlaid with gold. Even though they don't touch the ark, they just touch the rings that touch the feet that touch the ark. So far removed shall you be from it. Do not touch it. In 2 Samuel 6, we learn of a man named Uzzah who reached out to stable the ark as it was falling off the oxen cart and he touched it. And in God's wrath, he consumed Uzzah. He says, you shall not touch it. You are unholy, and the ark is holy. Why? Because it is a symbol of the God who is holy, the all-important one. Not only shall we not touch it, it says that they shall not even look at it. You see in Numbers chapter 4, verse 5, that there's this veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, like a big curtain. But when they are to travel, carrying it on the poles, they are to take that veil, special Levites, in a consecrated ritualistic way, take this veil and put it over the ark like a tarp to cover it so that no one could see it. It wasn't for common eyes to see. And one day, some Israelites in Beth Shemesh 
got so bold as to look into the ark, and God consumed them too. You shall not touch it. You shall not look on it. You see the consecration of the ark, not only in that, but also in the angels. You see in verse 18, he says, And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. These cherubim, these, a cherub angel, we first learn about them in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve are, are kicked out of the garden, there is a cherub placed with a flaming sword that spins in every direction to protect the tree of life so that they may not take from it. He was a guardian. And this is ornate and beautiful here. This is adding to it, but it's also adding not only to its costliness, but to its consecration because these were heavenly angelic beings. One commentator says that they are known to be guardians of the sacred, of the holy, and they are to be thrown attendants to the Almighty. And I love how um, Exodus 37, 1 through 9, is this it tells us the description of what the obedience for the prescription we find in Exodus 25. And there's very much the same language in both, except for in verse 1 it says, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. He's obeying it. And then in verse 9 there is something unique. It says, the cherubim spread out their wings above. Well, now they didn't actually do that. This is, this is language here to, to try to make, make you see what's happening. Bezalel actually created these angelic figures, these of hammered work of gold, and he made their wings go out overshadowing the ark. But here, he, he says, imagine it, they're representing real angelic beings, because this is what they do in the heavenly place above. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another, one on the, one side, one on the other. And then it says, toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Imagine, their wings are out hanging over the mercy seat, with her faces bowed down. If beings, heavenly beings, so pure and so powerful, bow down at the ark of God, shouldn't all the people of God as well? Especially considering that they are a sinful and weak people? Why? Because all of this is representing, it's a symbol of God and His supreme importance. We see it not only in the prescription, though, but also in the position of the ark. We see it not in Exodus 37 or in 25, but in Exodus 26, verses 33 and 34, we see the placement, the position of the ark amongst the people of God. Exodus 26, 33, And you shall hang the veil from the clasp, and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. That's where the ark of the covenant was supposed to be, in the most holy place. Okay, so in the land where the people of Israel were, there is this, this tabernacle courtyard that was a sacred place. And within this tabernacle courtyard was the tabernacle tent itself. And within their tabernacle was the holy place. And within the holy place was a veil that separated it from the most holy place. And within the most holy place stood the ark of God. It is literally in the inner sanctum. The most holy place on planet earth at that time was in the most holy place where the ark of God was. Why? Because that's where God was. Verse 22, there I will meet with you. He will meet with them above the ark in the most holy place. 
the very position of the ark. He's telling us it is a symbol of the supreme importance of God himself. Because when the tabernacle was constructed, it, was, uh, it became the centerpiece, the focal point of the entire earth. And the most holy place became the centerpiece and the central uh, the point for all of the tabernacle. And the ark was the centerpiece, the focal point of the most holy place. Why? Because that was the place where heaven and earth connected. That's what the ark is about. The tabernacle, you see, was a shadow, just representing the heavenly substance, the reality of heaven. And more importantly, it was the place, the tabernacle, and around the ark was the place where the heavenly angels were represented. And most importantly, it is the place where the God of heaven was set to dwell again in the midst of his people on earth. So the king of the kingdom of heaven was setting up his earthly throne room, and he called it the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And the ark was like a platform for his heavenly throne on earth. This is why the ark was the centerpiece for every individual Israelite and for all the people, the whole nation of Israel. It was the most important, the most holy, the most sacred, and the most supreme object in the world. Why? Because it represented, it was a symbol of the God who is of all importance. Now, believing that the ark is this symbol, and believing even that God is important, is not the same thing as believing that he is of supreme importance. Many people believe that God is important. And, and just believing that even just saying that, yes, God is all important, is not the same thing as living like that. In 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, we hear of the people of Israel going to war with the Philistines. And what they did was, they were saying the ark of God represents God himself. And we believe that God is of all importance. But then how they lived was by way of manipulating God, trying to use God for their own ends, which showed that they thought actually that God was the means and they were the end, that they were the center of the universe, that they were of supreme importance. They took the ark into battle. The others said, let's take the ark like some magical uh, talisman, some lucky charm that will go into battle with us and it will consume our enemies. God will fight for us then if we take the ark there and we will win. didn't happen that way and the ark was captured. You know, there are people who still seek to manipulate God, to use the holy God for their own ends, saying yes with their, with, out of one side of their mouth, God is the most important, the supreme one, and yet living like he's just a means to their ends. It might be different today. People might keep their religious duties. They come to their religious gatherings. They do their religious exercises. They they say their prayers, they give their offerings, they do their acts of kindness and service. They do all these things with the expectation that then God will make their life comfortable and convenient. Because that's really what they're after. I'm just using God, the all-important one, for what's really most important. Making my life easy. Well, there are others who maybe join a church or other religious organization or institution purely or mainly for the networking possibilities, for their business or their politics or their personal relationships. Preachers, they get this book and they know how to communicate and they use it 
as a means. They use God as a means to their end of fame or prestige or power or money or all the above. And you know, there's a, a very subtle way that this is often done today. There are people who have, um, I, I call it my way Christianity. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but I, do it, I do it my way. Meaning, I'm, I'm not going to be too radical or extreme or fanatical with it. it. Maybe it's because they would rather compromise with the culture around them. Maybe it's because they want to seem cool and hip or still connected, and they want to say, well, i got to be a good witness, so I can't be too far out there. So I'll speak how I want to speak. I'll spend my money the way I want to spend my money. I, I, I'll, I'll come to gatherings and, 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 and events and things when I feel like it, when it suits me because it's not that big of a deal. and I'll, I'll drink what I want, when I want, how I want. I'll watch what I want, when I want, how I want it. And, and, and don't tell me to not do that because I'll cry legalism and you don't get to do that. Which is really what they're saying is, God, that's far enough. Stay there. Don't invade this space. I'll be a Christian, but I'll, I'll be a moderate Christian. Did you know there is no such thing? It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis. He says that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. You cannot say, God is the all-important one. I, I just won't live that way. I'll live like, it's, like he's moderately important. He says, then you are deceiving yourself. You are not living for me. It is absolutely impossible to truly embrace that God is the supremely important one and live like anything else is. It's one or the other. We may not do it perfectly, but our heart desire should be there and we should be repentant when we don't. And this is why the ark of God was not just a symbol of God, you see. It was a symbol of how people should relate to God. It's a symbol of, of God's rule and God's mercy and how we should relate to God's rule and His mercy. So we could say that the ark of God was a symbol of the supreme importance of God. That is, it was a symbol of the supreme importance of the rule and mercy of God. Throughout the book of Exodus, we've been saying that, that we see that the Lord reveals himself as the covenant God who saves his people, who sustains his people, and who speaks to his people, all so that he may settle among his people. As Pastor Nathan said last week accurately from Exodus 25, verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in your midst. This, this is the, what, what the rest of the book of Exodus is about. And in one sense, it's what the full climax of the very gospel itself is about. That God would dwell in our midst. That He would be our God. That we would be His people. Most perfectly. God being in the midst of His people. Here with the Israelites in the tabernacle. Within the most holy place. Just above the Ark of the Covenant. That was the apex. That was the pinnacle. The climax of His covenant blessings to His people. The question is this, by what means can the holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And the answer is, by His rule and by His mercy. Or we could ask it another way. 
How can the sinful people stand in the midst of the holy God who comes to dwell with them? And the answer would be by their submission to his rule and by faith in his mercy. It is only by gladly submitting to God's rule and trusting in his mercy that we relate to him as we should. So let me ask you, what place does the rule of God and the mercy of God hold in your life? How you answer that question reveals whether or not you believe that he is and embracing that he is the supremely important one. If you do not embrace his rule and his mercy as being supremely important, then you do not embrace him as being supremely important. To think of relating to God in any other way than in glad-hearted submission to his holy rule is to be in grave error. To think of relating to God in any other way than by faith in his mercy is to be in grave error. The rule of God and the mercy of God are of supreme importance because he is. And that's how we are to relate to him. And we see this not just in the prescription of the ark or the position of the ark, but in the purpose of the ark. The word ark just means a chest, like a treasure chest. It's a box. Now, it's not just a box, right? It's a sacred box. It's a most holy chest. But as a box, it's meant to be used. It has a purpose. It is to be filled with something. And what is the content that fills the ark of God? In verse 16 of Exodus 25, And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. The testimony that I shall give you. We see it the same thing in verse 21. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. This is the Ten Commandments. This is stone tablets. We've already preached through Exodus 32 to 34, where Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, these stone tablets, and he smashed them because they had broken God's law. But this is before he received those tablets of stone. And so he's saying, when I give them to you, and it turns out it'll be the second time he gives them in Exodus 34, but when you have them, you're to take them and put them in the ark of God. The commandments of God. The rules of God representing the rule of God. For the good of his people, yes, but over his people. That he is the supreme one and his authority is over all. This is what is within the ark. It represents the supreme rule of God. We not only see what's in the ark, but what's above the ark. Look at verse 22. There I will meet with you. And then he says... I will speak with you, at the end of 22, with, with, with you about what? About all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to speak to you about my rule in your life and in this nation. Your job is to gladly submit to my supreme rule because it is of all importance. Because I am of all importance. This is what the ark is symbolizing. You see, it's not just what he will speak about, but where he's at. He will be above the ark. He will meet with him there. Above these two cherubim that are on top of the ark. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, we see what this was about. It's not just in this passage, but in others as well. It says, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. God doesn't just dwell with them above the ark. He is enthroned. He is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And he's come down to earth to 
what? To display his rule in his people, for his people, over his people. He is the king. And we learn from verse 12 of chapter 25 that there are these poles that go through the rings on the ark. And the rings are attached to the feet. There are feet on the ark. That, that means that it is raised up off of the ground because it is holy and sacred. But the poles go through the rings that are on the feet so that when they carried it, we are learning in First Chronicles 15 and number 7, they carried the ark on the poles on their shoulders. That's how they carried Egyptian pharaohs. That's how they carried kings. On their shoulders. So that, they, so that the throne of God would always be above their heads. So that we would always bow the knee and, and bend, uh, bend down below the rule of God. Gladly submitting to His supreme rule. This is what the ark is symbolizing. But our problem is that in our sinful flesh, we do not want His rule. We would rather rule ourselves. We would rather call the shots. And that God is the one who has supreme rule over us. Well, that makes us feel like we have limited freedom of choice and freedom of expression, and we don't like that. Because it reminds us that we are not God. That life is not all about us. That we're not the center of the universe. And even if we say, yes, I believe that God is king. He is supreme. And I want to bow before him and, 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 and gladly submit to his rule. Sometimes we still foolishly give in to the thinking that as God as king, if he really loved me, I mean, if, if he's going to use his rule for my good, if he really loved me, he'd give me the love of freedom, letting me do what I want, letting me have my own way. That's real love. And it gets confusing for us because we're called to pray to God and ask Him and to give Him our heart's desires. And God daily, multiple times a day, He blesses us graciously. God comes as the King and He, and he serves us. Listen, just because God graciously serves you does not make you His master. He still holds the place of supreme importance. He is still king, and he still deserves for us to gladly submit to his supreme rule. And when we don't, we diminish his rule. Oh, not actually. You can't take away his authority, his supremacy. But in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, we are diminishing his rule. And this is wicked. This is the heart of of the first sin, and really all sin, trying to dethrone God and deify ourselves. And this makes it clear that we do not deserve God to be in our midst. We do not deserve for Him to come to us and be our God who saves us and sustains us and, and speaks to us so that He can settle among us for our good. We don't deserve that. No, this also tells us that if He were to do that, if God were to come among us and be in our midst, and for even one moment, he would and he should consume us. And so we need not only the rule of God, we need the mercy of God. We need this propitiating, reconciling mercy of God. And so this, this is good that the ark has two purposes, not only to hold content, but it serves also as a covering. Covering of verse 17 of Exodus 25, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its height, its breadth. 
Notice this is the exact measurement of the ark itself, so it completely covers the ark. Verse 21, And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark to cover it, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And it is there that I will meet with you. Not just above the testimony, but above the mercy seat. That's important. Notice he, he says in verse 16, what do you put in the ark? You put the testimony. Verse 21, what do you put in the ark? The testimony. Even verse 22, he calls it the ark of the testimony. Most commonly, we refer to it as the ark of the covenant or the ark of God. Now, to be sure, the word testimony and covenant have major overlap and have many similarities in meaning, but there is a nuanced difference. Meaning of testimony is saying that because of this covenant relationship that you have with God, that God is covenanting to you, promising to you to be such and such and do certain things for you. And He's calling you to covenant to Him to keep these commandments. But calling it a testimony means that just like at a wedding ceremony when you have uh, two people normally go up and sign the, the, wedding, uh, the marriage license to say, I'm a witness testifying that this indeed was valid. He says the, the covenant commandments serve as a kind of witness testifying whether or not you have kept your covenant conditions. Now, if you ever did not want to have an all-seeing, all-knowing, and truth-telling witness, it would be now. Because the testimony, the witness of the law of God testifies not for us, but against us. Have you... Have you always obeyed God's law? Do you constantly love God as king? Do you gladly submit to His supreme rule? And do you see Him and embrace Him as the all-important one? The answer we must all say truthfully is no. And the law, the word, the rules of God testify against us that this is so. So if God were to meet with us just over the testimony, it would be our undoing. And so he adds a covering, a covering over the testimony, a covering over the commandment, the rules. It's the mercy seat. Mercy seat is somewhat of an unfortunate translation, I think. Not because it's not about mercy, but because it makes it think like there's an actual chair there that someone sits in. It's not so. It, it literally means that at the place of mercy or better, the place of propitiation. Propitiation is a big but very important word. And it has to do with God's wrath, His anger for sin, and it being completely satisfied. But don't think of it as a fire that is like at a campfire, and before you go to bed at night, you say, oh, let's put out the fire. So you take some water and you pour out the fire, and it dissipates in all this smoke and ash. That's not what propitiation is. That would be putting the fire out too early. It would be more like if you have the fire and it does its full work and it consumes every last piece of wood and bark and ash. When it's done its completeness, when then its rage can go out. It's only when it's completed. In Leviticus 16, we learn of the Day of Atonement. In Hebrew, it's called the Yom Kippur. And it has the same uh, root of the word here we find for propitiation, the mercy seat, the kephareth. It's the, literally the day of propitiation. It's only one day of year for the people of Israel. And on that one day, 
the high priest, and only the high priest was to go into the most holy place. And when he goes into the most holy place, to the mercy seat, with all these ritualistic consecration, he's to take the blood of a sacrificed animal, and he's to sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat seven times for himself, for his own sin. And then seven times more for the sins of his people. Why seven? Because seven is the number of completion, of fullness. To say, God's wrath has to be completely poured out. You don't get to stop it early by pouring water on it and saying, okay, God, God, chill out, chill out. Calm down, God. Don't be so angry at our sin. It's not that big of a deal. That's not propitiation. Um, it, it, it's kind of like where there was once a chief of a tribe where he was a righteous and just man. And there was somebody stealing in the village. And he vowed to bring justice and to punish this thief with the punishment that was deserved. It was something like 20 lashes. But the longer it went on and they didn't catch him, he got more and more angry and he said, if we find a thief, he will be pay, have to pay double the price. And the time went on even further and they still didn't catch the thief. And so they said, he said, we will do it three times the normal amount of the punishment for this crime. He will, they, this, this thief will be lashed three times the amount. Soon thereafter, they came to the chief, some of the men of the village, and said, we found the thief, but you cannot punish them. Well, of course I can. I must. They trust me to keep, to keep justice, and it has to be poured out. And said, you don't understand. You can't do it. He said, why not? He said, chief, the one who's been stealing everything, he's your mother. He was shocked, but he knew that he had to keep justice. So he ordered in front of the whole village to have his mother tied to a post. And they brought out the whip. And he knew that if she were to take three times the amount of lashings, it would kill her. And so before he, the uh, chosen man was set to convince the lashing, he told him to stop. And went over to his mother, and he told her, I love you, mom. And he put his massive chief arms around her. And his bare, massive back covered her whole body. And then he said, commence. And he was whipped. And not, not one lashing was left. All of them completed until his back was ripped to shreds. And his mom didn't have a single scratch. That's propitiation. That is the wrath settling. That is the justice satisfying. That is the sinner reconciling mercy of God. But, but who would do something like that for us? You know his name. It's Jesus. Jesus is our propitiation. You see, the propitiating, reconciling mercy of God never came through the blood of goat, goats and bulls. It wasn't intended to. Those were but a mere shadow of the substance who is Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 9.24 we read, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, like not the tabernacle, the most holy place, or in the temple. These are just copies of true things. Christ has entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What does, why is this so sacred of a place? 
Why is this the most important uh, tent and the most important place and the most important object in all the world for the Israelites? Because in verse 22, he says, there I will meet with you. you." It's the presence of God amidst his people. What makes it so holy? Jesus goes into heaven, not just to the shadow, but to the substance, heaven itself. And what does he do? He offers his own blood. Not the blood of some bull or, or goat, not some substitute, but he is the substitute. His own blood he offers. And he poured it out like as if it were seven times completion before the Father. The mercy seat of the ark of God is an old covenant shadow of Jesus himself on the cross. So the ark is no longer the place of propitiation because Jesus is the person of propitiation. He he is where God meets with his people who have sinfully diminished his supremacy, his supreme rule. And treated themselves and others as if they are the center of the universe. Jesus is where God meets with sinners who pour out his wrath for their sin. And he does this by mercy. Mercy because we do not deserve it and we cannot earn it. He does this by mercy to reconcile sinners to himself. So that one day he will dwell in the midst of his people fully and forever. And he does this by Jesus. Jesus, who himself is the mercy seat of God. He is the place of propitiation. It is in Jesus that we see the supreme importance of God's mercy. And it is in Jesus that we also see the supreme importance of God's rule. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation... He entered once for all into the holy places, the holy and the most holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, I love that, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, he was holy. Without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Why does he do this? So that we can be reconciled to him, and then what? That we would serve the living God. Did you notice, after the mercy seat is there, he doesn't say, okay, now no more rule, no more commandments. He says, above the mercy seat, I will meet with you, and I will still give you my rule. Jesus says, I've come to give you propitiating, reconciling mercy from God and I've now freed you, redeemed you, eternal redemption so that you can serve the living God. So that you can then so gladly, evermore, glad-heartedly submit to His rule. So far from God's mercy in Christ diminishing the importance of gladly submitting to His rule, it only increases it. It heightens it. It shows us how much more important it actually is having been reconciled by the mercy of God in Christ, we are now freed to ever more gladly submit to the rule of God through Christ. What the Israelites did with the ark, how they viewed the ark, how they treated the ark of God revealed whether or not they embraced God as the all-important one. So too, what we do with Jesus, how we view Him, how we treat Him reveals whether or not we're embracing that God is the supremely all-important one. The Lord Jesus 
He should hold the place of all importance in our lives. And therefore, we should gladly submit to His rule. Trusting Him to constantly mediate this propitiating, reconciling mercy of God for us. The Lord Jesus should occupy the foundational, the central, and the supreme place in every aspect of every part of all of our lives. In everything we think, everything we feel, everything we desire, everything we say, and everything we do. There is no moderate Christian. We should seek to gladly submit to His rule completely because it is supreme. He is supreme. Trusting in His mercy because it is supreme. We do have a natural aversion to authority. We have a natural aversion to God's kingship, His rule, and His mercy. We have a natural aversion to living under authority and living by faith. We would much rather rule ourselves and rely on ourselves. But it doesn't change the facts that Jesus is King of God's kingdom. He is the King of this heavenly kingdom and He is seeking to rule over us on earth for our good, yes, and over us by His mercy. Oh, that we would all see afresh and more clearly and more powerfully and that we would see with a greater heart of faith that God is supreme, that He is the all-important one and that we would then Therefore, grow in glad-hearted submission and in humble faith to the rule and the mercy of God. But this morning, if you are not yet there, as we come to partake of communion, I invite you to think, to consider whether this is for you. Because if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not submitting to Him as Lord, the communion meal is not yet for you. So when others partake of communion, I urge you, I exhort you to not. Instead, to bow your head and to pray. And to ask God to open the eyes of your heart so that you would see what is true about yourself and your own sin and about Him and His holiness and about Jesus and His mercy. But this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, You've had your faith affirmed by Christians in baptism in a local church, just like Grant did today. And I invite you to take the communion cup, take out the wafer that represents the body of Jesus that was broken for sinners like us. That he was, as his flesh was torn, it was like the curtain was torn between the holy and the most holy place as Jesus entered into heaven on our behalf. And take with faith. In the same way, take the juice that represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out for sinners to cover us as the mercy seat covered the ark. And take it with faith, giving praise to Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for being supreme. Forgive us for not embracing you as such as you deserve. Thank you for the forgiveness we have through Christ. Continue to help us to delight to submit to your rule and trust in your mercy. Through our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.